Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So this past week was a busy week for us at Talking Tachlis. As many of you probably remember, last week's episode was about the student march for LGBTQ representation at YU. And it was a pretty intense episode and we got a lot of feedback. So we want to just go through the feedback because I think a lot of it, I think, made both of us think um, both the positive feedback and the negative feedback. And I think it was like a really interesting experience to to hear from all of you and be able to like engage in a, in a bigger conversation. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, we spoke and I was also thinking about what we've spoken about on the podcast before, which is the reason that we do this podcast in the first place is not because we think we have the definitive answers mm-hmm. to any of these issues, but these are issues that we're already talking about and thinking about, and we're trying to figure out right. what we think, and we want to hear what other people think, and that's why we always ask for feedback. And the fact that we got so much feedback and had like lengthy discussions with many people um, off the air, to me, was very important, and that, to me, is the best part yeah. of, of doing this show. But I also want to start this week with an apology. Last week, we talked about Courtney, one of the student organizers of the protest, and we played a clip from her speech where she talked about a few weeks into her start at YU, she was in a class, and the rabbi who was teaching the class said some things about gay people that were very hurtful to Courtney, and she ran out of the class crying and called her mom. Mm-hmm. And there was a broader point that I wanted to make about YU, but I used that story as a launching pad to make my point, which was wrong and I shouldn't have done. And I apologize for that. I should have just left the story as it was and just accepted Courtney's pain from that experience. And in addition to that, when Courtney told how this rabbi lumped together homosexuality, incest, and bestiality as all punishable by death in the Torah, I want to clarify that there's no context in which that's okay or in which making a statement like that is ever appropriate. So those are the two apologies right. that I So as you to know, make. Uri, I'm a big fan of apologies and especially like it's a little time. I think you did pretty well. I think you you acknowledged strongly what you felt like you actually did wrong, right? The problem that people often have with apologies is they're like, well, I'm sorry if, if you thought that I was, you know, uh, being mean or being cruel or being hurtful, but like, you know, that's not what I intended. And I'm so sorry mm-hmm. you felt that way. And I think you, you kind of did a good job acknowledging that you maybe felt like you didn't quite live up to your own expectations. Mm-hmm. Another comment that a couple of people mentioned, including YU alums, but also just including people who have been around, you know, the larger modern Orthodox community that said, maybe this rabbi said, you know, who, who knows exactly what happened in this scenario, but it doesn't even matter because this type of situation in which there's these casual comments made which others, homosexual students, which talks about homosexual students or homosexual people as if like they're not exactly part of the regular community, that that just happens all the time. Sometimes there's outright hostility. There might be jokes from students, from teachers, things like that. And sometimes it's just this othering, but that that happens all the time. Not to say that like we shouldn't try to engage with those particular rabbis and say, hey, why did you say that? Hey, what does that mean? Right. And I gave the example last week of the conversation that I had with that rabbi and that rabbi really apologized and said that from he, seminary. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that he had really changed the way that he thought about it and the way he spoke about it. But talking about one particular story um, makes it seem and I think this is something that we, we both kind of did makes it seem like this is something that happened once and we should discuss that as opposed to this is a phenomenon that does happen very well, often or yes I also but I also think on the flip side of that discussing this one story um, doesn't acknowledge 
all the many, many other stories that other YU students have had um, in their experience, both positive and negative. And that's sort of, that is what I was reacting to, that I didn't want that one story to be a generalization of what every rabbi at yeah. YU is, because I, I still don't think that that's true. But why don't, we, why don't we get into some of the feedback? And like I said, it was aside from just getting so much feedback, what was really great was that a lot of these emails and texts and Facebook messages that we got were like really, really long yeah. and thought out and yeah. very like nuanced. And then we, ha- and I, ha- whenever we get a long email, I feel the need yeah. to respond with a long I actually, email. I should add, there are a couple emails and, re- and messages that we've gotten that we haven't yet gotten a chance right. to respond to, but we did read it and we will respond yes. to you. Apologies in advance. So and thought- if you haven't yet, because you think we're not going to, we will please yes, send us will. more messages. And so, right. Instead of us just discussing this more and more, um, we thought it would be nice before moving on to this week's topic to just read or summarize some of the feedback that we got. So I'll start. Um, somebody posted a comment on a, one of our Facebook posts on the Talking Talkless Facebook page. And here's what he wrote. I found listening to this podcast both wonderful, especially the clips from Courtney Marks and from Dina Klein's parents, as well as Rifke's comments, but also painful. So much of the hour is taken up with Uri's torturous hesitations, defensiveness, protectiveness about YU, and second-guessing the language of the organizers' demands and speeches. He fears that the protest may do lasting damage to YU. He spends much less time considering the lasting damage being done today to LGBTQ plus students at Yeshiva and Stern, both those who are out and those who feel that they have good reason to remain closeted. There was way too little focus on the latter in this podcast. So that was a bit harsh. Yeah. All right, I'm proud of you for, for reading that out loud because I think that that would crush me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little more sensitive, I think. I am a sensitive person, but I actually have, I think I've gotten a lot better uh, over the years and especially since doing this podcast at taking criticism mm-hmm. and thinking, rethinking things that I've said. Um, so I really appreciate that feedback. I thought about it a lot. I mean, obviously he disagrees with things that I said and that's fine. In, in terms of like we focus too much on one thing and not on the other thing, we got that from some other people also. And I was wondering about that. Like what is our responsibility in terms of like the number of minutes that we spend on one thing or another? We tend to talk about parts about issues in general and parts of the issues that we disagree about or that right. are more nuanced because that's where the there's more discussion to be had. If we're both on the same page about something, we often will take it for granted that we're on the same page or that that's an obvious thing and then we won't talk about it. But it could be that to listeners, it might not be as obvious and they won't realize the reason why we didn't talk about it, which I think is a fair comment to make but I also don't know exactly what to do with that well it's, it's not just about number of minutes it's also like the the parts that we played inside like we, we played pieces of the of the march itself and some of the speakers and some of the so, there were some things that were incredibly powerful that we both experienced being there that we talked about how incredibly right. powerful it was but those weren't the pieces that we played right so I think that someone who wasn't there didn't quite get the same experience that even though we kept saying it was powerful it was incredible here's what was so good about X here's what was so good about Y but the parts we played didn't necessarily reflect that and instead there was a longer conversation about the things we disagree on I think it, it's less about the number of minutes and more about like what what's going to be remembered and the powerful things that people can really walk away with right again i i, I hear that right. even even within courtney's speech she said a lot of really amazing things and re- a lot of things that neither of us like that we were both completely on board with right. and were, that, that's so important we just didn't right play that but part. sometimes the problem is we're like oh that's kind of like boring and obvious like yeah well, it's not so boring inc- but obvious right, boring yeah. is too strong a word but we're like oh that's obvious so let's focus on this thing we disagree on but for the people who are listening it might not be obvious right 
for sure. Well, now I want to read another um, comment. This is from uh, somebody who did not want to be named. I think what is often missed is a nuanced understanding of orthodoxies, and in this case, YU's, rejection of LGBTQ ideology and individuals. Saying that it's purely about halacha misses the point. Halacha is not simply a legal code. It is a guide to the values that undergird Jewish life and practice. The values that LGBTQ represents stand diametrically opposed to orthodoxy's conceptions of the family, ordered society, and keeping unbridled over-sexuality at bay. That is not homophobia, but simply a different and legitimate worldview that is in opposition to current progressive values. How much can YU engage with progressive values without risking its religious and ethical integrity? Should it capitulate in the name of safety and mental health? Because if you go down that road, you inevitably end up where so many of these progressives have ended up, choosing humanism over halacha, as in Aaron Kohler's article. This is, and that's in reference to an article that we mentioned also right. by a YU professor. We'll put a link to that. Yes. This is not to say that I have no empathy for gay students at YU. I have an immense amount of empathy, but the unfortunate reality is that every system and every community has outliers who will get hurt by the system, and that is truly tragic. But do we sacrifice our ideals and values for the comfort and safety of those people? So, Uri, I, I mean, I found that incredibly upsetting to, to mm-hmm. read. Um, obviously, I, I understand that he's coming from a place that he's... He, he, he's He's struggling. We're all struggling. Or, or she, actually. I don't even know. Yeah. I, I literally don't know who wrote mm-hmm. this. But I did find this incredibly problematic and upsetting. Um, this idea of like sacrificing our ideas and values. What The point is, we have a hundred ideals and we have a hundred values. Right. And it's all about balance and saying like, oh, we're just sacrificing this because like gay people, what, what, what's the language? Unbridled over sexuality. Wow. That, that, that to me feels very upsetting. I mean, uh, I would love to sit down and talk with this person, but I I found that to be a very upsetting thing to read. That particular line definitely stood out to me also. I was definitely also taken aback by it. And I definitely don't agree with what this person is saying because I don't think that having gay students at YU and acknowledging that they're gay is diametrically opposed to the values of YU. But I think it's important to understand how many people view this issue. And for a lot of people, there are multiple issues and values and ideas that are at play here. It's not just about accepting or rejecting these students. I'm trying very hard not to see this as one side against another. I don't think this situation is good versus evil. I think almost all the people um, involved in this broader conversation, whether they be the protesters, whether they be the YU administration, I think just about all of them are good people who want everybody to be happy and safe, and they really want to do the right thing. And they're struggling, or some of them are struggling with what is the right thing here. And so I think, I mean, to acknowledge that YU is in a tough spot, I think is a fair acknowledgement that... Uh, you know, I think needs to be said that sure. they're not. It's not black and white that they're choosing to like in I, a hateful I, I way totally just ignore agree. this whole good you know. versus evil is is a really unhelpful uh, framework here. But I also think it's important to point out, which is also something that a few a few people have written in to say, is that there are also power dynamics at play here, and those power dynamics matter. And the fact is that YU as an institution has the power, and these right. students who well, are protesting don't really have the power. I, I don't love that language, but it is. But there's a lot of truth to it. And I agree, Like yes, a lot of other people said, like, listen, YU doesn't need you to defend them right. and stick up for them. Right, the it's idea like, yeah, of like, they don't they don't need me, but right. I can still say my opinion. Obviously, there's more to the conversation. As you pointed out last week, one of the most troubling or problematic things about this whole thing is that YU seems to be refusing to engage. 100%, which is my main problem with yeah. that. 
Yeah, and exactly. I'm certainly not defending YU's silence. And I know they have made certain statements or the president has referred back to the pre-existing anti-harassment policy at YU, but I definitely don't think that's anywhere near enough. I think this issue has to be addressed explicitly and there has to be a transparent conversation between the administration and the students and alumni. And I think that's the only way that this issue is going to be resolved and hopefully it will be soon. One more piece of feedback that I want to just mention was from a YU alumnus who basically, like many other people, um, talked about the nuance here and the the tough spot that YU is in. But he actually referred us to an article uh, from the YU commentator from, I think it was 2017, so a couple years ago. And I found the article, you read the article, right, Rifki? Yeah. I found it to be very moving. I was tearing up while I was reading it, just very painful and difficult to read, but also extremely important. It was written by a current YU student, current at the time, two years ago at least. And he talks about his experience growing up in the Orthodox community, being in the closet, figuring out that he was gay, feeling extreme depression and rejection from the community, from his teachers, from his peers. And he eventually winds up at YU. And the title of the article is actually, Where are the Pitchforks? Being an Openly Gay Student at Yeshiva University. And he talks about coming out as gay at YU. And he says how he was actually very surprised that there were no pitchforks, that Almost all of his friends and his roommate and his teachers were actually very supportive and weren't bothered at all by the fact that he was gay, expressed their support for him. And the article was definitely not a whitewashing of the YU culture. There's plenty of criticism. He specifically says, and this is two years ago, but he talks about the need, um, the essential need for an LGBTQ club at YU so that students have a place for support where they can see that there are other students going through similar experiences. But he also tells some stories from classes and he tells one story where a professor said something that was very hurtful and the student says how he, he just dropped that class and he didn't want to be associated with that professor but he tells another story about being in class and that professor said something that was very supportive and inclusive of LGBTQ people and the professor didn't know that there was anybody in the class who was gay and the student really appreciated what that professor said and the thesis of this article is basically that this student overall had a very positive experience at YU as an openly gay student and yes there is a lot to criticize and there is a lot of work to go in the general orthodox community culture and YU in particular his name is on the article he even gives his email out and he says if anybody wants to talk he, he's there and he's happy to talk to other people going through similar experiences and everyone has their own experience and and I think all experiences are valuable and important to be aware of but I, I really appreciated the nuance that that he had in that article. Right. Yeah, he, he definitely wa- seemed to share a more positive experience than I think many of us think about. Uh, he also definitely had really the, those intense, you know, negative experiences, sure. not just that professor, uh, but, but more things like that. But um, I think it just really provided a, a face. that, And that's kind of similar to the power of, of Dina Klein and her parents, who really provide, provided a face for the people who are, who are going through this struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, what was, that's what's so powerful about, about this often. I just want to share one more piece of feedback uh, that I thought was really valuable because it kind of took the conversation in a different direction. This feedback was from friend of the pod, Devora, and she was she, she jumped off from the story that we were talking about, the story that Courtney said about her rabbi who had uh, made comments that she found incredibly hurtful. And we were discussing um, whether there was context, you know, whatever stuff like that. And Uri was saying that maybe it wasn't as 
hateful as you know we just don't know because we don't have the full context so um Devorah was saying that she really didn't think that she assumes very strongly that the rabbi was probably very insensitive and then she wrote why do i think this because it's been my own experience not only with homophobia but with anti-feminism there is a lot in the torah that is hurtful to women and when these things are presented without comment they are damaging I know this from my own teachers in the mainstream Orthodox YU world. I know this from teaching high school, the questions that came up constantly. And here's the thing. You don't have to be outright hateful. You don't have to say gay people are evil or women are evil, in my case, to make it clear that someone is not welcome, is not part of your group. All you have to do is not acknowledge their experience. All you have to do is ignore their presence and their concerns. I went to GPATS and have a lot of gratitude. Sorry, just uh, for people who don't know, GPATS is the graduate program in advanced Talmud studies that is one of the grad schools at YU. And it's just for women. Right. I went to GPATS and have a lot of gratitude for being provided with the tools for my first career. But I have no warm feelings toward YU because the entire time I was there, I knew that many Roshay Yeshiva opposed the program, taught their students not to date us refused to come as guest speakers, made jokes about us, and generally contributed to an environment where we were second class. I knew that we never had the funding we needed. I knew that we were supposed to feel grateful that the program existed at all and shouldn't pester people with our nitpicky concerns that it actually meet our needs. And I know from the many statements of YU rabbis against women's advancement that my place religiously is not with YU. Not because they called me evil, because they did not let me be an insider, because they did not take me seriously, because they constantly questioned my motives or my methods or criticized me for not saying things in the exact, most perfect, most palatable way. So yes, not calling people evil is obviously a baseline that unfortunately cannot be taken for granted. But people don't want to be in a place where they are second class, where they're supposed to be grateful for crumbs, where they are asked to accept so much less than what mainstream people can take for granted. So... I thought that was really powerful, I think, yeah. especially because I, I kind of relate to, to Devore's mm-hmm. experience. Um, I but did you not go to GPATS. Right, you. exactly. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I, in listening to last week's episode, I was like, I mentioned so many times that I didn't go to YU. Um, but uh, I, I think that the power that there is, is kind of just responding to this idea of so much of what it is to feel comfortable is feeling like I am part of the inside. And when YU, and YU is, you know, the example that we're talking about, but when this, when the the larger environment is hostile to people and kind of makes them feel like they're on the outside, even without using particular hateful language, there's, there's something so, there's such a disconnect there that that in and of itself is just so hard and so hurtful for the people who do feel like they're on the outside. Yeah, I definitely sympathize with that sentiment. Before we move on, Uri and I both, we wanted to acknowledge uh, the pretty traumatic event that happened in our community last week where uh, SAR, which is a a lower school, a middle school, a high school in Riverdale that is very popular and many of our our friends and peers have gone to or teach at and are associated with in some way. An associate principal was arrested on criminal charges that he had tricked children into sending him sexually explicit images. It's been a pretty rough week for especially people in the Riverdale community, because that's where SAR is based, and also uh, Yeshiva Flatbush, where he was before Riverdale. Uh, It's been pretty harrowing for for many of those students and parents and graduates. Um, This story and investigation is not going to be our our topic for this week, but it's definitely something that's, I mean, been weighing heavily uh, on both of us and, you know, our entire community. So we wanted to acknowledge it. Yes, for sure. 
So for our main topic this week, we spoke a few weeks ago about Dafyomi, which is a program in which every single day, everyone who joins the program learns the same page of Talmud, and they finish the entire Talmud in about seven and a half years. Well, there's a similar program called 929, devoted to the daily study of Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. The participants in this program read one chapter per day of Tanakh, five days per week, and they cover all 929 chapters of Tanakh, hence the name 929. The program was started in Israel, in Hebrew, by the Israeli Education Ministry about five years ago. They finished the cycle and began again last summer, and this time they also started with an English version, which is being spearheaded by Jewish educators Shira Hecht Kohler and Rabbi Adam Mintz. Alongside the actual text study, the Hebrew and English websites both offer interpretations and commentaries from modern thinkers, ranging from Orthodox teachers of Torah to Jewish media stars who are decidedly non-Orthodox. The general audience of this program seems to be everyone, but the interpretations can be offered from anyone who has something new and interesting to share, regardless of their background. 929 has been an exciting and valuable experience for many people who wanted regular learning, but find that the communal structure helps them actually accomplish their goals. At the same time, last week, Rabbi Gill's student, who is an Orthodox rabbi with a very strong social media presence, he actually has, I think, one of the first Jewish blogs. Like I remember mm-hmm. reading it, I think, when I was in Israel for the year. So he's been around a while. He published a short essay called Is 929 Kosher? In the essay, he argues that because there are, quote, non-traditional interpretations of Tanakh and, quote, perspectives from people who do not consider the text to be words of prophecy, therefore we, the public, should be wary about learning from them because, quote, studying non-Orthodox perspectives on the Bible is not recommended. So, Uri, neither of us are regular participants within the 929 program. I've definitely read some of the materials on the site, and I enjoyed them. And additionally, many friends of mine, and I assume yours as well, teach and learn through 929 and have found it incredibly valuable. So, Uri, what do you think about 929? Do you think it's as problematic as Rabbi Student seems to find it? Do you think people should be wary of 929 or that it should be off limits to Orthodox learners? And more fundamentally, what do you think about limits to what people should or shouldn't learn? Should there be limits? What are those limits? Well, before getting into this conversation, um, I do want to start with a disclaimer. It's a little bit different than our usual Mm -hmm. kind of disclaimers. This one is a conflict of interest disclaimer, which is just that I've done a lot of work for 929, and I've worked very closely with Shira Hachtkohler and Rabbi Mintz. They Mm -hmm. are very amazing people, and I consider them friends. Um, But that being said... um, I would like to respond to some of your questions. <laughs> I also just think that everybody should should read the Gill student piece. It's, yeah, it's of actually, course we'll put a link to we'll it. We'll put a link to it. It's very short. I actually thought we could have theoretically read the whole thing on the podcast. I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> but there is one line that I, I do want to read that you didn't reference, Rifki, which is he says towards the end, um, I could quote halachic authorities about this, but I don't think it's necessary. If the problem is not obvious to you, I am not writing for you. I think it's fair to say that his actual thesis was not nobody should be learning from 929. What he was saying was if you are orthodox and traditional and you are looking for orthodox traditional sources to learn Tanakh, you should just be aware that 929 has material in it that comes from a non-orthodox, non-traditional perspective. And I think he was theoretically writing this to people who just might not have been aware of that and he's 
you know, you could ask why is it necessary? Like, let their adults, they, or, or maybe they're not adults, but they could figure that out themselves. And that's, that's a separate question. But I just think it's important to, to point that out. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that this was uh, aggressive this or This wasn't a fire preachy. and brimstone. No. He didn't name any names or call people right. out or call anyone. Well, he, he did name names, but he wasn't naming, he, he here's wasn't the list are, of names of people off limits. He was saying, here's yes. an example. He wasn't saying here, these are a bad people. people. He wasn't right. saying these are heretics or anything like that. It actually made me think a lot about a previous episode that we did a few weeks ago that we called Live and Let Live. And we talked about a scenario where somebody expresses an idea, a religious idea, and the person is speaking to their audience. They're not trying to say everyone needs to do this or abide by this. And then somebody from the outside who was not in that community or not in that intended audience of that statement but is offended by the statement and then wants to criticize or attack the person who made that statement and say that they're wrong for saying that and they shouldn't have said that, where do we draw the line? And when do we say that a person has a right to have their own religious beliefs, even if other people disagree with it? And at what point do we say live and let live? That I disagree with this person and he's not talking to me and I'm not going to abide by what he's saying, but he has a right to say it and he doesn't need to be attacked for, for holding his beliefs. So when he says something that is like this would be, I think, considered like yeshivish leaning, let's say, or discouraging um, learning Torah from sources that are not necessarily all traditional, I think that's a legitimate viewpoint whether or not I agree with it he's a, that's that's perfectly legitimate for him to say and to speak to other people who are in his camp and then for people to come along I mean what you also didn't say was that there was a lot of hate on Facebook right. that, I, that I saw yeah it's a good point and some of it was very vicious against him there was mm-hmm. name calling there was profanity there were jokes about violence against him somebody called him a racist I'm not sure what that had anything to do right. with this but I thought that was all just very uncalled for right yeah that's true so some people I think, you know, as you point out, very often on Facebook, the vitriol is, is completely ridiculous. And in social media in general, it's totally unrelated to the content of the post. Especially and people when the original are so post, offensive. Especially when right. the original post was in yeah. a very level-headed... So, okay, but Uri, that having been said, so, so what do you think about the, the content of his, his argument? Right, so, I mean, it did make me think. It sort of relates... It also reminded me of um, our conversation with Rabbi Linzer when we were talking about biblical criticism. And... I, but, I wrote down that, okay, that like, same thing. Right. So there's there's stuff out there that like is let's say non-traditional and calls into question some of our notions of tradition and misora and at least personally for me like I am interested in knowing what's out there and I do find that interesting and I do like my views and my opinions to be challenged because that makes me think about why do I think and believe the things that I do. So I don't think I agree with his underlying point of if you are a traditional Orthodox Jew, stay away from 929. And he actually gave an alternative of the OU right. um, Tanakh learning program, I think which it's is a, more it's a traditional. Okay. Um, so I personally think that there is a lot of value in 929, even for traditional Orthodox people. So I guess in summation, I don't necessarily agree with Rabbi Student, but I think, first of all, his opinion is completely valid. There's nothing wrong with what he said. And I may share some of his concerns on some level. Okay, so Uri, I think I hear what you're saying. I, I think fundamentally what bothers me about um, Rabbi Student's arguments is similar to, as you pointed out, is similar to the, the conversation that we had with the Red Linzer, which was difficult for me to pinpoint at the time. And now I think you know, a few weeks out from that conversation, I'm better able to, to understand what is it that bothered me. Mm-hmm. It feels like with this conversation about like what's in bounds, what's out of bounds, what are we nervous about, what are we uncomfortable with, 
it feels like it fundamentally becomes much less about what is true and what is godly and what is real and much more about what is from, what is kosher, what is orthodox, what are... uh, What are following the boundaries as we've laid out in the theologically appropriate ways in which we should approach things? And I just feel like, who cares? Like, I really fundamentally feel this way. Like, I just don't understand why we focus so much. This feels why like it matters it, yeah, where like, it's coming why, from. Why the back, what, well, where did the teacher study? Who cares? What's the name of the teacher? Uh, what's the teacher's political leanings? What, like, things like that. I, 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 we talk about identity politics sometimes, and I, this feels like another case of, like, well, if this person doesn't have the right education or the right belief system, then, like, I can't take right. seriously what they have to say about this parak of Tanakh, about this chapter, right, of the Bible. And to me, that feels like so upsetting. If that person has a major truth to speak and there is something valuable about what they have to say, who cares what their right. denomination is? Why does that matter? I and think, I think yeah. I think blocking people or saying not not blocking, where my student was not like, hey, you shouldn't do this. He was not controlling but sort of this sort of warning of like, just know, like this person is not, you know, theologically on the up and up, whatever, feels like, why does that matter? Right. Well, like, that's, uh, that's very interesting. He, I think he specifically tried to avoid any specific issues. Yeah, he didn't bring examples to any articles mm-hmm. or things in Tanakh. But yes, it did it did it did actually stand out to me now that you mention it when he was like, you know, just to prove my point that one of the articles was written by a maharat in training and one of the articles was written by somebody who was ordained at JTS. Like and I agree with you 100%. Like why should that inherently be a reason to write someone off like what about what they said and it's hard because he was specifically trying to avoid specific things that people said I'm sure if he wanted to prove his point for what he was saying he could have found plenty of information but what what I also wanted to say to that was that I agree with you Rifki the thing all right we can close it here if anything about this bothers me it's not that I don't want to hear any Torah from somebody who isn't orthodox it's not that at all for me and this is not is no longer specifically about 929 um this is something that's come up um in other scenarios specifically in um experiences that i've had where um a talk was given like ostensibly like a torah talk was given um in in memory of somebody who passed away mm-hmm. so this is a time of people to get together um and right, there's something meaningful about mean, this experience. yes and and to learn torah in in this person's memory and and as a re, as a way of getting together and then the thing that was taught, at least some of the times, was from a more critical academic perspective, and it wasn't something that had any sort of lesson or value attached to it. And my problem with it had nothing to do with whether or not the person speaking was orthodox. I just didn't find what the person was speaking about to be appropriate in that context. And I know this story is kind of an extreme example, and just to be clear, when it comes to 929, if there's an article about archaeology that gives us a better idea of the to contextualize what was happening at the time that the stories in Tanakh take place, or if, even if something's written by somebody who isn't Jewish, but is talking about the ideas in Tanakh and lessons that we can learn, I think that's great. And there's a lot of value in that. But when it comes to other things, when it comes to things that are more in the biblical criticism category, if I have limited time in my day or my week and I'm going to set aside time to go to a class or learn Torah, I want it to be something that's going to be 
spiritually enriching, making me feel good about learning Torah, being Jewish, mm -hmm. not question the validity of the sources of the Torah, you know? What's interesting to me is, is thinking about like shiurim, quote unquote, in general, or sermons or drushas. It often feels to me like when I read or hear things from non-Orthodox perspectives, this is a huge generalization, mm -hmm. things from non-Orthodox perspectives, I think they're much heavier on the love, compassion, uplifting, mm, and it feels like in a lot of ways, Orthodox has a much heavier focus on textual criticism. Uh, there's like a Analysis. hyper intellectualizing. Yeah, exactly. Especially like it dives into halacha more. So I think it depends I think, on the context. Uh, of the, course, of yeah. course. And I hear what you're saying that uh, uh, there's a context in which I might want one thing. There's a context in which I might be more comfortable with another thing. You know, all that matters. A time and but a place. For yeah, both. totally. I, I definitely recognize that, especially, you know, when you're coming from an emotional place and you're thinking about your friend, you're thinking, A, like, what would your friend find meaningful to a certain extent there's also like what do i need at this particular moment like you're, right. you're coming from a specific place that feels really valuable and really true and also a little different i think like the the rabbi linzer conversation that we were having when rabbi linzer was talking about the the dangers quote unquote and he did he didn't use such strong language mm -hmm. but sort of like um you know, and we even use the matrix example, right? A blue pill, red pill of sort of like, look, there's nothing wrong with not wanting to be challenged, with wanting to be comfortable with your like simple beliefs. And like, if people want that, we should absolutely be, be comfortable with that. And we should only include biblical criticism in a way that is totally kosher and is totally comfortable. And especially- or put a disclaimer on it. Right. And, and Just know what yes, you're getting exactly. into, which I think but, is what- But also even doing. further, that sort of like, oh, you, they might go off the derech, they might stop being from in college because they're going to be- concern. Right, but, but this is something that, that he brought up and it's actually something that- uh, someone uh, left this comment on Rabbi Student's article saying, you don't take into account the reverse phenomenon. People who leave orthodoxy because they only learn a single rigid system that asks them to swallow what makes no sense to them. When it turns out that plenty of orthodox thinkers share their viewpoint or are at least tolerant of it. I think that he makes a fair point, but I still want to push back even further and say that doesn't matter either. The point isn't, oh no, we're scared they're going to stop being from, so we have well, to save the, the them. The vaccine analogy right. that Rabbi Linzer made. You need yeah. a taste of the stuff to be And I think I, I, I don't like it. I think the point is a search for truth and meaning in a way that's real. If you find meaning in something that's superficial, and that's not good. Like I know I that I, I, I sound like a little Haredi yeah, or a, I don't think comforting and emotionally supportive is superficial. Uh, that's it's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying comforting. Uh, there's nothing wrong. Like I believe in emotional and comforting Torah. Absolutely, I believe in a deep relationship with God through text. Like all of those things are very real. But when we say only these types of learning are appropriate because we have a fear of someone going off the derech, the more they, they think about things differently, I think that's like incredibly harmful because it makes the goal about like being on a specific derech, being on a specific path and not about finding ultimate truth. Right. And yeah. I think that's the wrong goal. I think by learning the more traditional thing, they're not denying other things that are out there. They're just prioritizing what's more important to their spiritual growth and their well-being. Is it to know all the criticism of this thing that I don't really know that well in so the first place. So what if what were more valuable for my spiritual growth was learning something that like wasn't true? What if I wrote a book, a really beautiful, amazing, meaningful book that touched and everyone's right. so soul who read it, would you be like, well, then I guess that everyone should read that an hour a day? And believe that that's true. No, I, I don't like that analogy, but if, unless you're referring to the Torah. As, no, as I'm referring true. to a fake book that I made up. Meaning if I'm saying I'm, I'm taking an obvious extreme, right? This is completely fake. I'm pretending that it's from God. I'm pretending that this contains all the wisdom in the world. And really, it's like wisdom for me. I think it's true. I think it's meaningful. Right? I'm not saying the Torah is that. Right. Right? So I think the Torah I'm, is divine. Right. I think I'm the Torah without, is from God. Right, without making that analogy, I'm, all I'm saying is 
at the end of the day, religion comes down to belief. And if somebody believes that the Torah is written by God, I don't think there's anything superficial or lacking in that belief just because that person isn't interested in learning all of the sources out there that argue that the Torah was not written by God. They can choose to learn those things if they want to, and if they don't want to, that's fine, and they can still be very honest, thinking, truth-oriented people. Uh, another comment, Uri, that I, I thought was really interesting was by uh, Rabbi Todd Berman, who is, uh, he is, I think, either the director of the, the Roshir, I'm not sure exactly his role, but he's at Yeshiva Eretz Tzvi, which is a, a gap year program in Israel. What he wrote is, I must admit, I'm a bit confused by the harsh backlash to Rabbi Gil's students' post. I am one of those who try to read a wide variety and supports my students doing so. However, Rabbi Student raises a valid question slash concern about the nature of what Ovdeh Hashem read. I don't subscribe to his conclusion, but to dismiss his question out of hand seems to be to miss the complexity of the traditionally minded confronting modernity. Professor James Kugel dissuaded traditional students at Harvard from taking his Bible survey course and suggests that they opt for his much more traditionally friendly course on biblical interpretation. He writes the same at the beginning of How to Read the Bible. What Rabbi Student wrote in his blog sounds a lot like Kugel. One can disagree with that approach, as I do, but that doesn't mean it's not worthy of serious consideration. So I think right. what we're doing, Uri, is seriously considering well, it. I, I I'm like just that saying comment it's bad. very much. I, I like what he said a lot and also reminded me of Rabbi Linzer when he said, like, I'm not saying people shouldn't learn biblical criticism, but be wary, and maybe it's not for everybody. I don't think I don't see any problem. With I think saying I, that. I'm I'm fine with the be wary, but I think I disagree with it. It's not. You for think everyone. it's for everybody? I think more knowledge for everyone, even though even every if they don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Like I might say, like no, no, no I don't want knowledge. Somebody, yeah. Like if you have knowledge that like my you know best friend is out there raping women, right? I'm taking an extreme <sighs> ridiculous example, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to know things like that. Like, Listeners you, can't see my eyes rolling right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm purposely giving an extreme ridiculous example to so like sometimes knowledge is important, even though it might hurt me. It might hurt my relationship with God to understand that halacha is not exactly okay. from God, but sometimes it's, it's, it's better for my relationship with it's truth. Not, and maybe this is one of the times that it's no not. truth is always more important. This is a fundamental. Okay. So we know like, which pill you would take in the absolutely and which pill everyone should take (laughs) all right um obviously there's more to this conversation there's more to the first half of this discussion there's more to this discussion but uh before we end there's a really exciting piece of news that we have to share with all of you yes this is very exciting and i also think it's important to say that not every topic that we talk about on talking talkless despite what it may seem not every topic is like super heavy and uh, divisive. Um, so we want to take this opportunity to wish a huge mazel tov to the Israeli national baseball team who just qualified for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Here's a short clip of their final out in their game against South Africa to clinch that Olympic spot. Right-hander is working quickly, and he comes home. And this ball's flown out to right field. Simon Rosenbaum reaches up. And that's the out that ends it. We could say it, it's official next year in Tokyo. Israel's going to the Olympic Games. I think that's funny next year in Tokyo. I have mixed feelings about about that choice of words, but it is funny and cute. 
Um, huge underdog story here with Israel. Uri, I want to confess something ridiculous. Okay. I follow Jewish baseball news on Instagram. Oh, wow. So okay. I've been following this oh, so you for knew, a while. Knew all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was very exciting. It also raised a lot of really interesting um, issues and questions relating to Jews and sports and why Jews get so excited when there are Jewish athletes that are successful. And it also reminded me of what we spoke about a few weeks ago about um, American Jews and loyalty. Um, how the, this Israel baseball team is made up almost entirely of Jews that were born in America and then were recruited to move to Israel and play for Israel. So this might be something that we delve into more deeply in the future, but in the meantime, huge mazel tov to the team and we're looking forward to Tokyo 2020. Thank you all so much for listening. There's something that we always forget to do, but we're going to try to be a little bit better about it. We're going to urge all of you to please, if you have not yet, please subscribe. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. Uh, my grandfather figured out how to listen to podcasts. Hello, Zadie. Oh, nice. So if Zadie can do it, then all of you can. And please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Those things apparently really help for new people to find us. I don't know how any of that works, but that's what people say. And of course, most importantly, we really, really, really want you to be in touch with us. Please email us, podcast at gmail.com. And of course, please join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. Thanks as always to Drive In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.